Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are very pleased to have with us today Rabbi Dr. Gil Pearl. Rabbi Pearl is a noted speaker, educator, and scholar. Dr. Pearl earned his master's and PhD degrees from Harvard University and received rabbinical ordination from Reitz Yeshiva University. Rabbi Pearl served as the head of school at Kohelet Yeshiva in suburban Philadelphia and as chief academic officer of the Kohelet Foundation. Currently, Rabbi Pearl is the CEO of the Addis Family Foundation and the founding head of the Jewish Leadership Academy in the Miami area. In his writings and lectures, Rabbi Pearl tackles a wide range of topics, including history of modern Jewry, contemporary Jewish education, and modern orthodoxy. And today, we will be discussing a fascinating subject and book, The Pillar of Volusion, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, and the world of 19th century Lithuanian Torah scholarship. It is a um, insightful book and urge all of our viewers and listeners, as I did, to go on to Amazon, click of a button, delivered straight to your home, free delivery. And um, Rabbi Dr. Pearl, again, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, to get started, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Berlin and Lithuanian Torah scholarship. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my background, I, I came through it as probably the uh, a rather standard modern Orthodox track growing up in um, in Bergen County. Frisch spent two years in, in Israel following graduation post high school. And that, the truth of the matter is that's really where my interest was peaked. I was uh, a student at Yishvat Haritzion and uh, was looking for something to sink my teeth into around, um, you know, Parshel Shavua, and somebody suggested that I perhaps try uh, Ha'amik Davar, which was pretty new to me then, um, and that is the, the Netziv's Perush of Chomish, and I started learning it and was really pretty fascinated by, by what I saw um, and, you know, continued at it even post you know, post yeshiva as, a, as an undergraduate student, um, and you know, I, I think what piqued my interest most was a a distinct sense of something very modern, very creative in his work. And um, you know, while I was no expert in Jewish history at the time, I, I certainly had an interest. And the little that I knew, this was a a parish on Chumash that that emerged from Eastern Europe in the in the 19th century from a, a small shtetl called Belazhin, you know, written by people who were not Western educated. They weren't university educated. There wasn't anything modern about the world that this had come from, at least as far as I knew. And yet there seemed to be something distinctly modern, creative, different about the, the content of what he was writing, and that just that just continued to kind of pique my interest, my imagination, to the point that I got to graduate school and kind of had the opportunity to really sink my teeth into it and ask, you know, the big questions about what what was going on there and and what was this that I was seeing and and what what wasn't I seeing, 
you know, about uh, about you know the the context from which this emerged. Um, just briefly, what was the state of Lithuanian Jewry in the early 1800s? Set the scene a bit. Sure. Um, so, you know, much of Eastern European Jewry goes through a, a very rocky time in the second half of the 18th century. Right? This is a this is the period um, uh, that sees the the great um, Disputes emerge between you know, the, the rise of Hasidus and the backlash, particularly in the Lithuanian community, against you know what they saw as sort of a new form of of traditional Judaism, a new hierarchy of values. Um, this is the period in which the the what was the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth um, uh, ceases to exist and, and now becomes part and parcel of the Russian Empire. Um, and, and that sparks a whole other set of kind of questions from a political standpoint of what is the, what does, what does Russia do with its Jews, that an entire population that it now inherited, um, or didn't inherit, kind of conquered. Um, so it's, it's a, the, the end of the 19th century, the 18th century is a, is a period of, I think, a good degree of, um, of flux, a, a good degree of, uncertainty for much of the 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 Jewish community in the Polish Lithuanian um, uh, was the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth um, in Lithuania in particular there there is you know less of a openness to Hasidus which by the turn of the 19th century and certainly over the course of the early 19th century is, is really going to come to dominate much of what was Poland um, and, and even you know, large swaths of, of what was Central Europe, um, but really doesn't doesn't take doesn't find fertile soil in the Lithuanian world quite the, quite the same way. What you have in those first decades of the 19th century so is actually a, a return to some stability actually because they are now under the the rule of the of the Russian Tsars. Um, the the Russian czars, although Catherine the Great herself, um, uh, you know, who was really responsible for the the partition of Poland, was actually quite benevolent to. She saw herself as an enlightened despot and was 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 actually quite benevolent to the Jewish community initially. Um, uh, you know, those who succeed her, um, particularly Alexander the First, who is the who is the czar for the first quarter of the 19th century, um, and then Nicholas the First, who takes um, uh, who takes over after him, replaces him, and is the is the czar for the next quarter of the 19th century. They both have this need to do something about the Jewish question. So they there are a whole bunch of different approaches they take towards what they call Russification to try and make the Jews the Jewish community more Russian. Um, none of them tend to work terribly well. But but the the flip side of that is that they are quite powerful in their in their rule and and that creates a certain sense of stability that things are the way they are they're not going to be changing really quite you know much again um, and when there is political political stability there tends to be some you know cultural flourishing in in the Jewish community so from a political standpoint things weren't great but but things were actually I think a little bit better. In terms of the, the stability, at least that the Jewish community faced. Um, you know what's interesting about the first half of the 19th century, though, is that this 
as I said a moment ago, Hasidus doesn't really penetrate into the Lithuanian world. I mean, it's there, they know about it and they see it, but, but the, the masses are not, you know, haven't really um, adopted it. So it, this is almost, it's pre-Hasidus or it's, it's not Hasidus. It's also pre the, you know, um, the, the rise of the yeshiva movement. 1803 is the, the founding of the Velazhner yeshiva. And then in 1815, there will be a similar yeshiva founded in, in Velazhn, but it, sorry, in Mir. But it's not until the middle of the 19th century that these institutions really begin to dominate the landscape and, and the cultural landscape of Lithuanian Jewry. So there's, it's pre the real rise of the yeshiva movement. It's also pre Haskalah. That's something that we that, that we often get wrong, and that the the movement for Jewish enlightenment in Western Europe is is very much in full force. And by the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, that's a movement that's well underway. It does not really penetrate into Eastern Europe until the middle of the 19th century. It's the second half of the 19th century that sees a rise in 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 the the uh, influence of Haskalah. So you have a period of, you know, 30, 40 years in the first half of the 19th century that that isn't not, that where there's political stability and there's some cultural flourishing, but there is there's no there isn't quite a yeshiva movement yet. There isn't Hasidus and there isn't Haskalah. And that really is much where my book focuses on on what what, what, what was happening in this really interesting world of Lithuanian rabbinic scholarship in this in this first half of the 19th century. Um, just again, um, to set the scene, some of the biographical milestones of the early years of Nitziv, um, and when and how did Nitziv become head of the yeshiva in Belushin? Sure. Um, so the Nitziv was, was born in um, 1816. It's often, if you look it up, it says 1817, but it's a confusion around the, the Hebrew dates and the, and, and the secular dates. So it was November 20th, 1816. Um, and he's born to a, a fairly prominent family in the city of Mir, a small, you know, shtetl in, in what is today Belarus. Um, his, his family both has rabbinic Roots to it. Um, the the, the Eisen, his mother comes from the Eisenstadt family, which is a uh, you know a well-known rabbinic family, traces its uh, roots back to you know Rav Meir Eisenstadt, who was the author of the, the Pari Meiros and, um, and and others along the way. I mean, his father was a successful merchant, so he really he really brought the two worlds of both financial success and and, and Torah learning together. Um, and that's that's probably most obvious in the fact that his kids are you know have, have very good shidduchim made for them. Then um, it's not the only one, um, but you know his sister famously is you know is, um, gets married to Yerichiel Michal Levi Etzin, who's you know the author of the Archa Shulchan. Um, but the young Naftali is um, you know he, he's he's born and raised in Mir. He's educated there. We don't know much about his education. We assume he learned with his father. We assume that maybe that there, um, the rabbis of the town, which also kind of related to the Eisenstadt family, were involved in his early education. But what we know is that at the age of um, at the age of fourteen, a, um, a marriage is arranged for him um, to the daughter of Rav Itzla of Velazhin. Rav Itzla of Velazhin is the son of Rav Chaim of Velazhin, who takes over for Rav Chaim of Velazhin as the Rosh Yeshiva in the Itz Chaim Yeshiva in Velazhin. So um, she is uh, 13, he is 14. Um, when this 
when this marriage is arranged and he leaves home in order to marry her and then become a, you know, a student in the yeshiva. Um, in terms of where and how things, um, you know, proceed from there, there's, there's kind of the lore and then there's, there's what we know in terms of the actual, the actual facts. Um, you know, the, the lore, and, and I, always, I always hate saying this publicly because there are so many good and important messages that are often, often conveyed when, when people give over the story of the Nitziv as having been, quote unquote, as of average intelligence, you know, and someone who's sort of climbed his way to the top through tremendous hasmada and work. And, um, you know, and there's a variety of stories that are told around this theme. Um, I, I hesitate because I think all the messages are really good and important. As an educator, I, I, you know, I want to give them over to my own students. I just don't think they're true when it comes to uh, to the Nitziv. Um And the reasons I don't think they're true is, be, you know, there there are a number of them. But uh, first of all, you know, a young boy of average intelligence, you know, uh, Ashlamazel would not would not have a, a marriage arranged for him, you know, at the age of fourteen to the daughter of Rabitzel of Elijah. I'm just, case closed. It just wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. He would not marry off his daughter to somebody who didn't have tremendous potential as a as as a Tomcha. Um But beyond that, we actually have a we, we have we have a, a pretty reliable account. Um, a, a man by the name of, of Max Lilienthal, who is a, a Western German Jew who is in uh, Russia, who begins actually to work for the Russian government in trying to to further Russify or modernize uh, the Jewish community in Russia. It's a it's a, a mission he has that he fails terribly at and actually has to leave Russia and comes to Cincinnati um, it, here in the States. Um, and actually, once he does, he, he publishes a travel account of his travel through the Pale of Settlement and the various communities that he visited. And in that is, is, a, is an account of him coming to Volodzhin. And um, in, he, he relates that in 1841, he, um, he comes to Belajan, and um, Ravitsala is an old man at the time, um, and he notes that Ravitsala has him take, you know, the, that, that it's a, a, young, a young man named uh, Hirschleib, his son-in-law, Hirschleib is obviously Yiddish for Nachtali Tzvi, um, who is assigned the duty of taking um, uh, taking Max Williams all around, and he is re he's referred to as one of the greatest Talmudists in all of Russia um, at the age of 1841. And we also know, he's also, uh, it, it notes in that same account, that he's already been appointed to give, um, to give shiurim in, in Volozhin already. And he's, a, he's, he's 25 years old. Right? So, so either... He went from being a Shlemazel at the age of 13 and 14, and over the course of you know 10 years has had this incredible epiphany and is now at the age of 25, one of the greatest Talmudists in all of Russia, or there was, there was something there all along, you know, um, but that wasn't possibly you know, recognized by all or understood by all. Um, but we know by 1841, he's already giving, giving Shiurim in Belazhin. Uh, Ravitsala dies in 1849, and it's actually his older uh, son-in-law, Rabbi Eliezer Yitzhak Fried, who is um, appointed to to replace him at the Rosh Hashiva. He um, passes away um, rather young, only four years later. And so in 1853, at the age of 36, um, 
um, the, the Nisi was appointed Rosh Yeshiva of Balashan. And as many people know, that his appointment wasn't uncontested. Um, there were actually two attempts to contest his, his appointment, um, one by Rav Yosef Ber Salavechik, probably the most famous. Um, Rav Yosef Ber was initially appointed to be his number two in command, um, the other by Yehoshua Heshalevin, both of whom have direct uh, family links to Rav Chaim of Lashen, and it's, it has, has married into the family. The other two had direct family links. Each time a kind of a basin was was assembled to try and determine you know, whether there was any legitimacy to the claim, and in both accounts, um, the Nitziv, you know, his his stake and his his claim to the to, to being the Rosh Hashiva was uh, was just um, solidified. And so, from 1853 until 1891, he is the he is the Rosh Hashiva of the largest yeshiva in the world. Um, this is the, the, the Belajan at its height during the years that he is its, its Rosh Hashiva. Um, he doesn't travel very much. He doesn't leave. He doesn't go very far. He goes to Vilna on occasion. Um, but he, in 1891, he's actually forced to close the yeshiva. He's also very sick. Um, in 1892, he, he travels to, to Warsaw to get um, medical treatment. And then in 1893, he, he passes away there. In, in Warsaw. So those are kind of the, the major, major points in his kind of life, life story. Um, <clears throat> before we get into the specifics of, of the, one of his works, the Emek Nitziv, what were the major works that the Nitziv produced? Yeah, um, so people today generally know the Nitziv by his Peir Shabchomesh, Ahamek Zabar. Uh, that is not what the Nitziv considered to be his magnum opus. Um, the Nitziv, and, and he writes very clearly about it, his life work, the thing he was most proud of was um, his perush on the Sheiltos of Rabbi Chaigo, um, you know, known as Amik She'ela. This was a, a massive commentary on this Gaonic halachic work um, uh, that he published in his own lifetime. He was published it from the years 1861 to 1867. Um, he had been working on it for years and years beforehand. Um, and it is a, you know, it's a tour de force. It's an, it's an incredible work that um, really stems to, it uses the work of the Sheiltos as an entry point into understanding much of what happens in the Rishonim, whether it's, you know, Rishonim and their commentary on various areas of, of Shas or its halachic positions that um, the Rambam or others have taken. He believes that we can we understand much of how these positions amongst the Rishonim developed and were taken by looking back at an earlier work, you know, from the Geonim in this work of uh, um, Rabbi Chaigo. Um, in you know, late in his life, his, his parish on Chumash was published. Um, they were really, that really is a compilation of shiurim that he gave. One of the things that made the Nitziv unique was that he would give a Chumashir on, on a daily basis. He gave, you know, every week was on Parshas HaShavua. Um, but notes were taken, and, and he himself had, had notes from each of those, those shiurim, and those were compiled under his um, tutelage and his, his supervision into what is known as the Amek Zavar, which is a spy volume commentary on, on Chumash. 
Um, also in his lifetime, he published a, um, a parish called Rina Shel Torah, which is primarily a, a parish on Shira Shirim, but it also has this in, incredible uh, essay that's appended to it, um, really about the roots of anti-Semitism, uh, really fascinating and, and continues to be, I think, a very relevant and interesting read. Um, then Tzib did this. He, he, he wrote, in addition to his commentarial work, he would write very large introductions. Or, you know, in this case, it wasn't an introduction. It, there is an introduction to Shir Shirin, but this is an appendage to. But his, his introduction, for example, to Halamek um, She'ila, known as Kid Masa'emek, is pretty much a work in and of itself. It's a, it's a, a quasi-history of the you know, intellectual history of, of, of Torah Shabbat. Um, and it, it's a long piece sort of tracing the different types of Torah study that, emer- you know, that happened over the course of time and how they developed. Uh, his, his introduction to Amik Davar is also a work in and of itself that deserves to be, to be studied. But those are the works that he, he, he published during his lifetime, as well as a, um, a parish on, on the Haggadah. Uh, he obviously was a major posig, and um, he wrote... You know, innumerable letters and shadows and shuvos. Those were collected. Um, he knew that they were being collected in, in, late in his own lifetime. Um, he reluctantly gave his approval for them to be collected, collected and published, but they were published posthumously under the the title Meishiv Davar. So we have Amik, we have Amik She'ela on Shiltos, we have Amik Davar on Chumash, we have Rina Shaltora on Shira Shirim and Meshiv Davar. Those are all the things that he really gave his, um, uh, his approval to uh, publishing. Um, many, many years later, we're talking now about, so he passed away in 1893. We're talking about half a century later, beginning in the 1950s. His descendants will begin publishing other works that he wrote. Um, amongst them are the Marome Sada, which is his parish on, on certain Masechtos, um, in Shas. Um, it's his parish on the Sifrei that you mentioned before, Eimekhanetziv, as well as a commentary on Mechilta, and also what we would call notes, not a full commentary on, on Torah's Kohanim as well. So those are his, those are his, that's his literary output. Um, I guess we can now dive into Eimekhanetziv, which is what the uh, pillar of Elijah focuses on. Um, you had mentioned it now. So when exactly was it written? It was published much later. And how did it fit in with traditional Torah scholarship of that time when it was written? Yeah, so, so you know what? Let me maybe just go back to kind of the, the story of, and, and uh, I'll tell you sort of how I, how did I land on Amek on Nitziv? Of all things that the Nitziv yeah. published, well, you know, why, why, did, why did I focus on that? Um, so, so as I said, you know, at, at the outset, I had this fascination with, with Hamik Davar, not with Emek Hanetziv. I, I didn't know really Emek Hanetziv existed um, in, my, in my earlier years, an earlier fascination with Hanetziv. I was fascinated with Hamik Davar. Um, and I was fascinated particularly by this question of where did this come from? Right? What, why was there something in here that really seemed to be incredibly, again, for lack of a better word, modern or, or, and creative and out of the box, not something you would imagine coming from the Large, from the Rosh Yeshiva of the largest traditional Lithuanian Yeshiva in the world, it, it's not, it simply would not have, today, it would never come right from that world. So what, what was different? Where did, where did this come from? 
Um, you know, and, and as a graduate student, as a student studying history, so I was now at this point sort of wondering, well, well, what what clues do we have, you know, as to what could have given him this kind of this kind of perspective? And so the first thing you want to do is um, is look at the work itself. So again, my interest was in Hamikdavar. So I'm looking at Hamikdavar for clues as to what could have influenced this work and produced, you know, what I was reading. And particularly, I was interested in what, well, what sources is he citing, right? Perhaps he's citing works that he was reading that were influential on him, that were more of this, you know, sort of out of the box type of, type of source. And that would have explained, you know, at least some of it. Um, but you can read Hamikdavar up, you know, front, back, up and around, and, and you're really not going to find anything that he cites in Hamikdavar that is, you know, out of the ordinary. There's there's one citation, and oh, I almost almost every year somebody emails me about this. There's a, you know, when the discussion of of Moshe's name, uh, he cites a Rav Shmuel Beheim who has a, you know an, an interesting, almost you know critical academic critical approach to it. Um, and people always want to know who Shmuel Beheim is, and I tried, and I, I don't I don't know. That's the answer. I do not know. I spent some time on it years ago. I haven't gone back to it recently. I don't know the answer. But other than that, he, he, the Nesiv cites Chazal. He cites the Rishonim. He cites his his father-in-law, his grandfather-in-law, and he cites the Grah. And that's pretty much it. There's nothing in the work that suggests that he was reading anything outside of that. Um, so, so then my next step was to sort of figure out, well, okay, so if there's nothing here, well, maybe, maybe there are citations of what he was reading you know, somewhere else. Um, and ultimately, what I wanted to do was I wanted to get back to his, I was interested in the earliest things that he was reading, right? How, let, me, let me go back. Can I reconstruct his education in some way? And maybe that will shine some light on, on the output even later in his own life. And so... Um, I, I first started working on Ahmed Sheila, and then uh, through Ahmed Sheila, realized that actually, at least the way he was recounting in his own writing, it seems that his parish on Sifre was the earliest thing that he wrote. And so I spent a good time, a good amount of time, just trying to validate that claim that in fact, Emekanet Sivir's parish on the Sifre is the earliest thing he was working on. It's, it, it's the work of his youth. He was, you know, he'd started it certainly in his early 20s, but probably even in his late teens, he was already working on this parish, on this, you know, the halachic medrash of the, of, of, of the Sifrei. And, you know, what, once I, once I understood that that's really his, his earliest work, I dove into that. And, and what I found was really pretty startling. <laughs> I found that unlike in Amek, uh, you know, in Hamik Davar, in Amek Hanetziv, the Nitziv is citing left and right what he is reading, and it is very far from the uh, the traditional canon of, um, you know, what you would expect, and certainly what comes out later in the 19th century from the traditional, you know, world of, of the yeshiva. Um, and, you know, so, you know, for for example, the, the, you know, the Nitziv in his, um, in his parish on, on the Sifre is, is quoting from you know, works of Hebrew grammar, works of Hebrew grammar written by Karaites, 
you know, that he has no problem, you know, citing and telling you to go and, and read. Um, he is, he's citing people like Moses Mendelssohn, Naftali Hertz Weisel, who works with um, Mendelssohn in, in his parish on, on Chumash. Um, he is, you know, he's citing somebody like um, uh, um, Levita, who's, sorry, um, uh, um, Eliyahu, Eliyahu Levita, who, who wrote a work um, called, called uh, Tishbi and a work called Mesoret HaMesoret. And these are, are Renaissance works that are, were somewhat controversial in their time. Uh, you know, he's, uh, Levita is the first one to suggest, for example, that um, the Tamea Mikra didn't come from Sinai and that they were added in later on. Um, and the Nitziv has no problem, you know, uh, citing them. He's also citing works of, of Jewish philosophy, Kuzari, Mornavuchim, Sefari Karim, you know, Akedas Yitzchak, amongst others, which of course is not terribly controversial, but it's very different right, than, than what comes out of you know, your traditional Talmud scholarship in the, in, in the second half of the 19th century. He's also reading newspapers, and he cites the Maskilic newspapers of his day in, his, in, in this parish. Um, and so that was the big first revelation, you know, that I, that, that I had, um, that there is, he in fact was reading just about everything he could get his hands on and doesn't seem to have any compunction, you know, telling his readership that he is reading these things um, and, and suggesting that they go and read it themselves. Um, you know, probably the most, the most interesting amongst those is, uh, you know, a citation of, of Azariah de Rossi, which, you know, we can talk about as well. Um, but, but it was, it was this revelation that, that he in fact was, was reading quite broadly. Um, that was sort of my first aha. And I actually remember coming back to, uh, to my thesis advisor and telling him, you know, so my, my grand quest is now done. You know, I, I, I wanted to know what was the necessity of reading. I wanted to understand where all this creativity and sort of out of the box stuff came from. And now I can, you know, I can give you a list of his library. He was reading all sorts of interesting things. Um, and now I understand where it came from. Um, I, and I said to him, you know, it, it seems that the Nitziv was qu reading quite a bit underneath his Gemara, you know, as a, you know, as, as a young student. And to which my thesis advisor said to me, how do you know it was under the class? Um, which was a great question. You know, in, in other words, he, he pushed me to ask, well, was this unique? You know, was, was this different? Is, is the Nitziv doing something, you know, that's, that, that bucks the norm in the early 19th century? Or maybe this was actually the norm. And, and that's what forced me to sort of take aim at Nitziv and now put it into its context of other works that are being published around a similar time and found that in fact it does belong to a whole genre of of works that we don't know terribly well today but they they tend to be works on medrash so for example when when you open your standard vilna medrash rabba today it, almost all of the commentaries around the side of the page come from the first half of the 19th century lithuania um, they were reading, Medrash was a major focus of study, both Medrash Halacha, Medrash Agada, um, and, and Amik Anitziv was part of that, you know, he was, he was part of that world, and that's part of what he was interested in studying. Um, and many of these works share many of the sort of central features of Amik Anitziv, amongst them a, a focus on Pshat, 
a focus on amending the text. Um, you know, both things which which the the influence of the Gras is very clear, right? On in these works, um, they many of them also share this kind of intellectual breadth of citing really interesting works um, uh, with without any hesitation. Um, there's also interestingly a, a a format that a lot of them share in the, um, the the dual commentary, which we know the dual or triple commentary we probably know best from the Mishnabrura, right? That it, that it has multiple pieces all written by you know by by the same the same author. That's a that's a legacy. The Mishnabrura time is obviously also a, a product of 19th century Lithuania. He's very much on the end of that world, but that comes from earlier in the 19th century. Where this was the standard way of writing, you would have a, a a main text, you a main commentary, and then you would write a secondary commentary where you would elaborate, or you would put in almost footnotes, um, and that was pretty much standard amongst all these measures comment these measures commentaries, and it's true in Amekanasiv as well. And the other really interesting thing I found was a, a pension for poetry. Believe it or not, you know many of these works have introductory poetry at the beginning or at the end, which is something we often associate with, you know, Spain in the Middle Ages. But there it is amongst the uh, the rabbinic elite of ninth, early 19th century Lithuania, including the Nitzv, writing rhyming poetry uh, to introduce and to close their their work. So that in in brief is what Amekanitsev is um, and and why I landed up, you know, focusing focusing there. What what was there something that propelled um, the Nitziv and the other writers focus on on medrash and commentaries on medrash during that that period? Was it a reaction to something? Were they trying to get a certain point across? Why why, why was that a common commonality in that part of Jewish history? Yes, yeah, so I, I have a few theories on this. Um, one is sort of a lofty, you know, theoretical idea, and the other is perhaps a much more practical, less highfalutin um, thought on on this. So the the lofty one goes like this: I think you could actually trace a um, an arc of commentary that follows almost the hierarchy of um, Authority in halachic texts. That is, our earliest, our earliest commentaries tend to focus right, on um, the the text of the Bavli itself, right? That is our most authoritative halachic text, right? And out of that emerges both our, you know, our, our, our the perushim that we have on it, as well as the the halachic, you know. Codes, which starting with the riff, you know, and the Rambam and the tour, all try to to codify for us what is found there in in the Bavli. Um, I don't want to I don't wanna oversimplify it and say that that's you know was saturated, but but I think by the time you get to the 18th century, there's kind of this desire to say, all right, well, what's next, right? What's next after we we have so much commentary today already on the on the on the Bavli, I, I think it's it's interesting to note that the 18th century is where we begin to have commentary on the next rung, which would be the Rishami, right? In in terms of of halachic um, halachic hierarchy, and so our great works of, of, of 
on the Yerushalmi emerged from the 18th century. I think by the time we get to the 19th century, we're almost ready for that next rung down, which is the rest of the material of, of Chazal, um, which is found in places like you know, the, our Midrashim and Tosefta, um, and our earliest Gaonic works like like the Sheiltos. Now, for sure, some of this was the was, was the Vilna Gaon, right? It's the influence of the Vilna Gaon because the Vilna Gaon clearly wrote on all of these things. He he amended all of these texts. He was interested in 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 sort of the broad canon of Chazal, you know, completely. But but I think there's a progression there that can 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 be traced, you know, that lands us in the beginning of the 19th century. Post Yerushalmi, now let's look at the rest of the rest of Chazal. Um, there is also a you know a, a very definite reality that these texts are more accessible in the early 19th century. You have a you have a a, a real boom in the printing industry, in the Jewish print, Hebrew printing industry in Eastern Europe um, in the decades from 1780 to 1820. I believe you have. 43 new printing houses that emerged in Eastern Europe between the years 1780 and 1821, compared to six that emerged in the 80 years prior to that. So there's when you have new printing houses, they need to they need new material, right, to put out there, and so these works become accessible. But um, but the other piece that I think it very much ties into the the specific focus on Medrash is um, has to do with the the position of of Magid. This is something I touch upon a little bit in my book as well. Many of the Pirushim that are written um, are written by people who hold this position of, of Magid or Magid Meshari, um, which I think is also a, a position that's not so well understood today. It's often associated, I think, with storytelling, um, you know, itinerant preaching, which, which was true in some areas of, um, of Eastern Europe. But what's often lost is that the, the, the Magid was actually the predominant public intellectual of the time before the rise of the yeshiva, before you have, you know, a Rosh yeshiva. Um, the dominant public intellectual in Eastern European life was the Magid. He was the person who spoke on a regular basis, right? Your Rav of the town spoke twice a year and Shabbos uh, Agadol and Shabbos Shuba. The, the person who would give who would who, who would educate the masses? Who would whether it was you know halacha or, or or more often than not it was it was machshava it was musar would be the magid. If you were a big town, you'd have a, a permanent magid. This was what this was the job. Um, and, and not only that, but the magid generally the position of magid generally came along with a position on the town faced it. And so this was a a first rate talmud chacham. So Vilna has a you know, has has a magid, um, famously the Malbim, uh, uh, tried out to be the uh, the the magid of, of of Vilna, and he didn't make it. Um, but but so that these magidim are speaking on a regular basis, usually Shabbos afternoon. If you're a smaller town and you can't afford to have your own magid, there were itinerant magidim who would come in. They they'd, they'd come, you know go town to town. And Shabbos you'd pop on the you know on on the shulchan in, in Shabbos morning. You'd say such and such a magid. So you're just going to give a shear this afternoon. Um, but but so at the end of the day, these magidim need they need chomer ledrush. They need what to speak about, right? And and often their material is intended to be 
inspiring and it's intended to, you know, to really provoke the imagination, and engage their audiences. And so Medrash becomes a place to, to look in order in order to do that. And I, I think that very much ties in to the, the rise in popularity of, of Medrash during this time. Uh, you had mentioned, of course, um, Azaria de Rossi. Um, who was he? Why was he controversial? How did the team utilize him? You know, you know, today when you read even a Torah article, uh, whatever level it's on, people, rabbis, writers are always quoting secular sources to get a point across. Uh, it's it's common today, you know. But why why was he controversial as a source? someone like the Nitziv? Who was he? Why controversial? Okay, so let's let's sort of reframe that and say he wasn't controversial, right, in his time. That's my that's my argument in the book. Actually wasn't controversial, which makes it so interesting, right? <clears throat> Today we would see him as inter- as uh, you know potentially controversial. Um but but what's so fascinating is that he doesn't seem to have been controversial at all. Um, so who was Isaiah de Rossi? Isaiah de Rossi was a 16th century <clears throat> Italian Jewish scholar. Um, and um, he writes a book called Sefer Ma'orenaim uh, in, in 1573. And uh, the, the book is actually uh, really an, an amalgamation of three different works. Um, one called Hadras the Kenim, one called Kol Alokim, and the other Imri Bina. Um, and it, it's really the third one that gets the most uh, the, the most focused. Um, the, you know, Azari de Rossi was very much a, a product of Renaissance Italy and many of the intellectual, you know, currents of, of his time, which is the beginnings of a more kind of uh, scientific look at, um, you know, at, at history and, and at texts. Um, and so Azari de Rossi in his Aphimoreinaim advocates a First of all, I mean, he advocates a hermeneutical stance, you know, a stance towards rabbinic literature that kind of limits its authoritative nature to areas of halacha and, and argues that once Kazal are getting outside the area of halacha, so whether that be in the area of history or that be in the area of, of science, then we're not bound by what Chazal write in the same way that we are, you know, with regard to areas of, of halacha. And, and this wasn't, he wasn't the first to say this, you know, that you find this very much in the Gaonim, you know, well, well before him, but this was certainly not the dominant strand in the, in the Rishonim and in early, you know, East, in early or early modern Europe, um, in, in your more traditional communities, this became something that really becomes a, a, a flashpoint. Um, you know, as you do begin to have a rise of a Haskalah, and the Haskalah begins to focus its attention on a kind of a scientific, critical reading of our texts, they will look back at De Rossi and say, look, there was a traditional Jewish scholar, right, who was, who was writing this way already back in the, in, in the 16th century, and, and he becomes almost a hero in, 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 the, in that community. Um, and very much seen as, you know, suspect in the more traditional community. Now, in his time, it's, you know, it's interesting that there, there certainly does seem to have been backlash against him, at least in the, the period, in, in the years following his, his life. There is a, um, 
you know, a, a passage in, in, in the work of Rav Chaim David Azulai in Machzik Bracha, which is a, a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, which cites a letter from, from 1574 from two students of the Mechaber that, uh, that says that the work Mo'orinayim deserves to be burnt. Um, and perhaps most famously is that uh, the Maharal spends numerous pages um, in his Be'er Hagola De, you know, describing what he believes is the heresy of Durasik, that this is not a work, you know, that his, his you know, his treatment of Chazal is um, what, it, what he sees as, as tremendous disrespect and, and misunderstanding. You know, he, he, he believes that there is tremendous, that, that is he being the, the Maharal, that there's tremendous esoteric meaning that, that De Rossi doesn't comprehend in, in the works of Chazal, and, and therefore he sees them as way too flippant in dismissing, um, uh, you know, the the certain writings of Chazal as rhetorical flourishes or hyperbole or um, or ignorance. Um, so there definitely was some rabbinic um, uh, opposition to to De Rossi early on, well before the Nitzvah. And, and we also understand why it reemerges later on when that kind of work becomes associated with people who have left the world of, of traditional Judaism. What's, what's fascinating is that for the Nitziv, there seems to be no compunction whatsoever using this work. Uh, not just using it, but citing it and citing it at its most controversial. So the very places where de Rossi writes that this these words of Chazal are not to be taken literally, right? Or that this is just, you know, um, hyperbole. Or even where Zayid Rossi is citing church fathers as his source for geographic information that he might have. Not only does the Nitziv cite it, but he says, "Go look at it." He says, "Go read it." Right? I am Sefer Moreh, I am Eliazaria Domi, Ayin Sham. Go read it. Go read it for yourself. You can see exactly what he's doing. Um, you know, getting back to our to our story from beforehand, this was the most amazing thing to me. Like the fact that that this is just it, it's all over the place. And once you see it, you also understand that even when he's not citing De Rossi, he's taking a very similar type of you know hermeneutic approach to the work of Chazal. Um, so he was deeply influenced by the work without regard, without question. Um, but getting back to my story from before, it was now the question was well, was he alone? You know, is was was the Nitziv this renegade who had this, you know, this this copy of of De Rossi that he was using? And the answer is no. Um, uh, Yehuda Leib Adel, uh, uh, who is the Magid of, Slo- of Slonim, cites De Rossi. Or Avram Ben Agra cites De Rossi. Um, uh, the, um, the 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 of the Magid of Vilna um, uh, cites De Rossi on a number on a number of occasions. It seems to have been a work. Where in in early 19th century, amongst the the core, the cent- the center of Lithuanian scholarship, they didn't see the same kind of heretical um, tension in this work that those before him and those after him will will certainly see. Is it fair to say, therefore, that the early Nitziv vastly differed from the later Nitziv, and was that a result of the change that happened in Lithuanian Torah scholarship. So I, w- I would say I'd say yes and no, right? yes and no. So I think there's a change in the Nitziv and in his 
literary output um, from when he was a young man till you know to to his later years of life, and and that change, I think, does is a reflection of the changes happening in society around him. So, as I mentioned before, Anacondative is the earliest thing he wrote. Right? Um, he never publishes it, and I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, he the work that he does publish, you know, so this work is filled with references to the things he was writing, and the things that he does publish have none of these references in them, you know, whatsoever. Um, and I, I think that that is a reflection of the fact that a, when he was writing a mechanative, he was a younger light. Right? He's a bachar yeshiva, a bright one, you know, and a well-connected one. But he doesn't have the responsibilities of anybody else, you know, on his shoulders. Um, he's not responsible for training anybody else. Um, and so he writes. He writes what he thinks. He writes, you know, he cites he cites what he writes. He has no problem reading anything that's, you know, that he thinks is valuable, discarding anything that he doesn't. I think that once he becomes a Rosh Hashiva, I think that the calculus is different. I think that uh, he, he does feel a responsibility to be more careful with where he sends his readers, you know, and to, to read what, to engage with what. And I think that's partially because the world around him has changed as well. So I noted that in the early 19th century, which he's very much a product of, even though he's only born in 1816, he, he comes on the, you know, on the heels of that, but he's, he's very much tied into that world. Um, Haskalah is not a real threat. It's not a real threat to anybody in the, in, in, in the traditional world of, of Torah learning in, in, in the Lithuanian, in Lithuanian circles. By the middle of the 19th century, that changes. And there, and, and it is, and, and it, it, it has found its own ground. It has, there's a, there's a, a, a school for training modern rabbis that's founded um, in Vilna in 1848. Um, there is government support behind that camp, and you begin to have intellectuals emerge, you know, who will claim, like, you know, the great poet Yehuda Leib Gordon, that you should be, uh, you know, a, a Jew at home and a, you know, and a man in the street. Um, and that's that's a threat. That's definitely a threat. So suggesting that people go learn Mendelssohn or go learn uh, De Rossi has a different implication in the second half of the 19th century than it did in the first half. So his position has changed and the world around him has changed as well. Um, but all that having been said, we know that there were some really interesting people who came to learn in the, in the Yeshiva of Elijah in the second half of the 19th century, people like Chaim Nachman Bialik and Yosef Berdachevsky, people who would go on to distinguish careers well outside the world of traditional Judaism, um, people who were deep thinkers in a, you know, in a whole bunch of different ways. And what they all have in common is they all came to learn with the Nitziv. You know, by, by the second half of the 19th century, the Nitziv is giving shir, and then and, and Chaim Soloveitchik is there as well. Right? Uh, the, um, uh, Chaim Brisker was also giving shir. And, it's, and they give very different shir. They're very different people. They have a very close relationship, but they're very different people. Um, and these, this type of student, and there were plenty of tremendous Tamidi Chachamim who learned with the Nitziv as well, um, uh, you know, Rav Kook, Rav Chaim Ozer, you know, m- m- many. But, but that type of student seems to be attracted to the Nitziv, even in his later years, because there seems to be something that they sent, you know, about the way he writes and about the th- way he thinks and the way he's interested. And like I said before, it comes across in his it comes across, it's there in Amikdabar. You can't take it out of him. He's just not citing it in the same way, perhaps not sending people to read it in the, in the same way that he would have or did in his younger years. You write in the book, um, 
is kind of like a mystique, the, the manuscript of the Emekanetziv. So who holds that manuscript? Um, you talk about limited access to it. What, what's the story behind that uh, manuscript story? Yeah, it's my Indiana Jones story. Um, uh, <laughs> um, the story is simply, you know, as I was in this process of trying to verify that this was the earliest thing that he wrote, um, I needed to try and get my hands on the actual manuscript um, because, you know, one of the great lessons I learned from from Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik as an undergrad, you know, was that that you can't take for granted that a book, that a printed work is what it purports to be. Um, and especially a printed work that was printed in the in the 1950s, you know, that was clearly written, you know, almost 100 years earlier. Who knows what else could have gotten in there? Whether what purports to be the writing of the Nativ is actually the writing of the Nativ, and and much much of that can't be verified without actually getting your hands on a manuscript. So, um, I that was a that was a major goal of mine, um, and through various connections. Um, I was, you know, Ravzvul Harlap was a big help uh, in, in, in that process. I was able to track down the manuscript as being held by descendants of the Nitziv, um, in who lived in the Gula neighborhoods of, uh, you know, Yerushalayim. There was a, there's a yeshiva, I don't even know if it's still around today, but it was called, um, you know, Yeshiva's Village in Yerushalayim, that they were still, these are the, Descendants through of Rafael Shapiro. Rafael Shapiro marries the daughter of the Nitziv. Rafael Shapiro's daughter marries Chaim Soloveitchik. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, so that's that's the tree of the of the family that has his manuscripts in their possession, um, and they were good enough to allow me to to come and, and see. Um, I think we had very different expectations as to what was going to happen during that meeting or series of meetings. I, you know, I was a young graduate student at the time. I left my wife for the first time for a, you know, for a prolonged period of time to come to Israel, uh, hoping that I was going to sit with these manuscripts for a number of days and work my way through them, um, and you know, and be able to determine what pieces seem to have been. You know, there, there are multiple strands in this manuscript. You can see what's his earlier writing, what he added in afterwards. See if there was anything that was added by others um, by looking at changes in, 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 in handwriting. So I, I did get in to see them. The problem is that when when they let me in, I was seated at a table. The manuscript. There were two other people at the table. Uh, there was this Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Shalosh Yerushalayim. There was, I believe, it was his uncle. Um, they had the manuscript in front of them, and they wanted. They said to me, "So, what do you want to see?" Well, what do I want to see? I, I don't want to see it all. I mean, that's what I was there to do. This is a three-volume work, and I was really, I was, I was intending to sort of sit there, you know, happily at their living room, you know, at their dining room table, but to sit there and work through these various texts. And it was very clear to me very on that that was not their conception of what was going to happen here, but rather I was going to tell them a particular passage that I wanted to see, and they were going to look at it, and then they were going to pass it over to me if it got their, you know, their approval that I could look at it, and um, you know that was a that was a big disappointment for me. Um, I I did get to see it. I did get to see certain pieces. I got to see that they were very guarded around this manuscript, um, and I think particularly because of 
some of the citations that are in there. Some of, so for example, the, the citation of, um, of Mendelssohn, which does not, you would never know that that's what it is in the printed text um, because it's a, it's a, um, an abbreviation where one letter in the abbreviation is the wrong letter. And uh, you, so it, it, it says, um, um, uh, Moshe, the, the, the uh, um, abbreviation is, um, actually it doesn't, it doesn't even say Moshe, it says, Perush, um, Perush Aleph, uh, Im, um, uh, sorry, it's, it's, it's Chumish Taf Aleph, so Chumish Taf Aleph, Im, um, Im, Perush, uh, oh, sorry, Im Perush, uh, something, Mi Bet Ayin Samech Aleph. Um, point is, that it's it's corrupted there in the printed text. The, the word is actually Desau, not Besau. Um, and the reference is clearly to to the to um, most most Mendelssohn's parish on Chumash. And if you look up this, this place in you know in in his parish, it's exactly talking about what the Nativ is talking about there. But that citation is underlined in pink in the um, in the manuscript, so they know that it was there, right? They they were certainly aware of that. Um, and I think there was a little bit of you know, a, a fear over what I would do with this text and what it might do to the to the image and the the legacy of the um, of the nativ if I you know spread it too far. And so, unfortunately, I got to glimpse at a couple of pages. They were nice enough actually to make a copy of a few of the pages for me, so just so that I could be able to explain how you know what the text looked like and how he clearly changed and edited his text over over the years. But uh, there was a lot I didn't get to see, unfortunately. Right. Well, we, we can go on and on. I think our time is, is up. Again, um, the, the, the pillar from the Talies Fiuda Berlin, the world of 19th century Lithuanian Torah scholarship, Rabbi Dr. Pearl, this has been absolutely fascinating. And again, urge our viewers and listeners to simply go on and, and, uh, and purchase the book. And um, thank you so much for your time. It's really most appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me.